everyone who's listening to this podcast, which is a series of podcasts through the Institute for Social Justice at York St. John University. My name is Professor Divine Charura, and I'm a professor of counseling psychology at York St. John University. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Chaplin, who is a political theologian and a member of the Divinity Faculty at Cambridge University, and is also a research associate for the think tank Theos. Just to give a backdrop, the Institute of Social Justice at York St. John University was launched in July 2020, and uh, Professor Matthew Reason is the director for the Institute for Social Justice. Many colleagues who are engaging and bringing their passion for social justice and research expertise within York St. John University are members and join in to share their research, share ideas, share podcasts about social justice matters. The center itself draws on our history, York St. John University, of the work and the research that identifies and that exposes and that addresses systemic and interpersonal inequalities, injustices, power relationships across society. And I hope that through the podcast today, we'll make clear a part of our ambition to enhance this work and its impact in the future to help to tackle some of the most significant challenges that are facing society today. And I think given that we're recording in the year 2020, there's been a lot of challenges this year that relate to social justice on so many levels relating to the COVID situation we've been facing, racial injustice, many, many inequalities. So today we'll speak to some of the issues, particularly around social justice and the place for university and what we can do as universities and communities. At its core, the Institute really seeks to work with people, with partners, with communities, with participants in a manner that sees action, implementation, and change as really vital parts for our mission. So, Dr. Chaplin, welcome to this podcast. And I wonder if you could say something to, by way of uh, introducing yourself. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be partnering in this podcast series. I think it's a very exciting series. Very pleased to see the creation of the Institute for Social Justice. I think our universities need more such entities located right within the heart of the university. So congratulations, and I wish the Institute well. So I'm a specialist in political theology. My initial training was in political theory, mainstream political theory. I have interests in liberalism and in democracy, injustice, in religious and cultural pluralism, multiculturalism, and a range of other related questions, many of which I focus on the question of what is the state, what is the political order, and what its central tasks are in relation mm -hmm. to other entities in society such as the university so this is the area that i've worked and taught in over a number of years published a, a number of books in and i'm still working on now well i've read some of your work and it's very impressive and i hope today the listeners can get a glimpse and in fact i think they'll be in for a treat for some of the ideas that we're going to discuss today and Myself and, and you, we've spoken about, we've had conversations that are intended to animate discussion, both within York and John University, but more widely about the role of higher education in social justice, and equally the role of social justice within higher education. And by way of our dialogue today, a question that I would like to ask you is what you feel the role of activism and social justice is for the university. 
Well, that's a huge question. We can scratch the surface in these few minutes, but let's do our best. So I think I would make a basic distinction here between what you might call inward-facing activities of the mm-hmm. university and outward-facing public activities of the university. It's not a bright line, but it's a helpful distinction. So inward-facing would be the contents of research and teaching and so forth in the inner life of the university, facing anything that impacts on what is outside the university. So let me address your question through the outward-facing role. It seems to me that we have to see institutions as institutions fully embedded in society, one among many social institutions that is locked into all kinds of relationships with other social actors, other institutions, bound up with all the dynamics, the pathologies, the oppressions, abilities of society as a whole. For too long, there's been an assumption in certain sectors of the university sector that it is sort of autonomous with respect to society, that it almost it's a self-sufficient island doing its own task of pursuing pure research and pure knowledge. That's breaking down, rightly so. Hence, universities now routinely talk about public impact and that's faculty in terms of public impact as many faculty know that's inherently a good development impact can take many different forms in some cases it seems far removed from issues of social justice but nonetheless any activity that as it were contributes to a better understanding of challenges of social justice in society part of that outward facing task so universities have both expectations from society. They get financial support and they get all kinds of other support by universities, but equally society has expectations of universities. Universities are, for many people, although it's a tough environment at the moment, in many ways a very special and a privileged place to work. With that privilege comes the responsibility to the rest of society to contribute to the larger project of transforming society, transforming social structures, transforming the patterns and the endemic systems and patterns, behavioral, institutional, global, that frustrate humanity, that frustrate justice, that obstruct it. Anything that the university can do to contribute to that larger goal is a very good thing. And universities are doing that already, even if mm-hmm. even if they're not conscious of doing so. If some of them might actually deny that they're doing it, they are doing it. So it's far better to be explicit about that, to be self-conscious about it, and to be concerted about it beginning of the answer it's a wonderful answer and as you're speaking i'm smiling because i really love what you're saying to further the stimulus of our thinking about the nature of responsibility that we have in transforming society and these things that frustrate society the inequalities power dynamics in some ways the discrimination that happens the power relationships across society and some of the interpersonal and systemic inequalities that we work with and i think as a way of having this podcast that begins to open up thought for dialogue for my colleagues across york and john university and beyond and in relation to this idea of responsibility I think around the world today, more people than ever in history are being forced to flee conflict and persecution and to find safety and sanctuary elsewhere. And I think it's interesting what you're saying about higher educations in the UK, because I'm aware some higher educations have a proud and a radical tradition for providing sanctuary for academics and young people that may have faced political and social challenges in their lives. And over the years at York St. John, there's been a, a move and other universities to partner with the City of Sanctuary. 
Now, the City of Sanctuary, as you will know, is an organization which supports people who are seeking sanctuary. And for York St. John, having been recognized as a university of sanctuary, the purpose is to create a culture that is of welcome and hospitality at a local level. And through promoting understanding and recognition of us celebrating the ways in which people seek sanctuary that actually as we come together as diverse society we enrich society but also to provide opportunities for building closer relationships between local communities and those who are arriving in the communities and so i am leading up to a question by saying this jonathan that i wanted to ask if you could share some thoughts that you have as a scholar yourself around a university of sanctuary and what some of the inclusivity work within a university could look like Myself and, and colleagues, as you will know, I engaged in research, for example, to do with refugees and asylum seekers. I think our most recently published work was on lost grief and traumatic growth and the experience of refugees and asylum seekers. And we're just about to start a couple of research projects again with refugees and asylum seekers in the north of England in Yorkshire and Humber. And I wondered if you could say something around University of Sanctuary and inclusivity and what might be good practice or any thoughts that you have. It's a marvellous idea. And, I, you know, I commend York St. John for being committed to it. And I hope this movement grows. You know, just to step back a second, in a sense, that distinction I made earlier between mm -hmm. inward facing and outward facing, that's one that applies to every social institution, every economic institution, even if it's not recognised. So, for example, do we not want to see businesses or trade mm -hmm. unions, businesses and trade unions of sanctuary in their own way? contributing wow. to this larger goal. You know, one could go on cultural associations, right. arts associations, theatre groups, and so forth. In a sense, every institution has the possibility to exercise that kind of hospitality and generosity to those who are fleeing for their lives or in any other way in danger and oppressed. Universities, it seems to me, are ideally placed to play that sort of a role. They are already very international mm -hmm. institutions, certainly in the UK, international. Just in terms of the university's own self-interest, that's a very good thing. Knowledge growth thrives on that kind of diversity. That's the self-interested reason. Justice reason, of course, is that universities have these resources, have these spaces, have these opportunities to welcome people in those kinds of situations. And there's no reason at all why they shouldn't do so very deliberately and very intentionally, and every reason why they should do so, and intentionally and proudly. And the more universities, individual universities, take up this challenge, the ripple effect will spread and others will seek to emulate that. So it's an excellent goal. It's something that every kind of university could do. Any yeah. university can take such a role on, and more should do it intentionally. It's not a deviation from the university's core task. Historically, you can see that universities and colleges have been places of sanctuary down the yeah. centuries. People fleeing persecution, religious persecution yeah. in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. One of the places that provided that sort of hospitality were universities centuries ago. So this is a long-standing tradition. I think it's a very exciting project. You were speaking, I was thinking about the commitment from different schools. So I'm in the School of Education, Language and Psychology and how as colleagues who are developmental psychologists or neuropsychologists, counseling psychologists, or colleagues from other schools, you know, 
are coming together to this commitment of not only sanctuary, but social justice in relation to some of the work we are doing in partnership with the hospitals. For example, we're in partnership with the Tooth Trust and providing scholarships for research around dementia, for example, linking with other NHS trusts and doing research and teaching about military veterans and trauma and so on. And I think what you said about really being open as a university and as academics and students and as communities. And I really love what you said about businesses, everyone in community joining together to look at these challenges that we face as a society and as communities in relation to social justice. So I think there's a lot there again for us to further the stimulus of our thinking and to take forward. Yeah, I, one other thought. So one of the key terms of art in the modern university is access, you know, mm -hmm. widening access. It's a hugely important goal. It's a very welcome development. The word access, I would describe as kind of a morally thin word. It just seems to suggest a worldview in which individuals are seen as somewhat self-sufficient. There are certain barriers to entry which need to be removed. So it's a rather morally thin notion. Much better is the notion of hospitality, which hospitality. is what you use. Now, you know, that's probably not going to make its way very high onto, you know, the mission statements of most universities, because there'll be a certain unease about that kind of a language. Mm. But mm. why? Why would there be? It's a rich language. It's an invitational language. As I say, it's in line with the university's historic tradition, hospitable mm. to, mm. to many, many different different members of the community who have arrived there for all kinds of reasons and with all kinds of struggles and challenges. Mm -hmm. now, you mentioned people confronting mental illnesses. There are people confronting physical disabilities, all mm. sorts of other social disadvantages that have impaired a route towards higher education. Mm. And because in many cases, blocking it entirely, anything the university can do to, you know, blow open those doors and, yes. and make access much easier must be a good thing. And I think that has to trump the nervous concerns of some who still see the university sector as a kind of an, an elite formation mm -hmm. where there are, you have to have a trade-off between hospitality and academic quality. I mean, that simply is just false. You know, so those sorts of binary divides between the mm -hmm. purity of the research university and these wider social functions, we must overcome that. And I think that just your passion for that comes across in the message is what I deeply feel about what we must do and how we must engage with these matters uh, that affect all of us. And as you will know, I'm very interested in what we do within the university itself. If we are offering this hospitality, we do get undergraduates and postgraduates and colleagues who are academics from all walks of life, they come in. And then the next question is what we do inwardly. I'm leading up here to thinking about why it is important to engage in research and a curriculum that identifies and in many ways also exposes and addresses systemic and interpersonal inequalities, injustices, and power relationships across society, because I think that's so important. And I, I wonder whether you could say something about that. Yes, I mean, that very idea has become particularly controversial in the last year. It has. Uh, you know, one of the spin-offs of um, Black Lives Matter has been the campaign over statues and, uh, mm. and other symbols, the sort of the visible decolonizing of the university, so mm. to speak. And then as well, of course, the so-called decolonizing of the curriculum. And that's evoked 
huge passions on both sides. Um, there's a lot of resistance to that idea, mm -hmm. uh, of course, as well. And it's not a straightforward question how to do that or what no. it actually means. You know, those questions should not be taken simply at face value. Deconstruct the questions and find out what actually mm -hmm. is really at stake. Let me try and put that in a somewhat larger perspective. Yeah. The language of, say, decolonizing the curriculum is, I think, best seen as part of a larger vision of what curriculum and research itself is. The teaching function of the university is supposed to flow from its research. So this is what makes a university different from other forms of education, which is that teaching flows directly out of research. Two are seen as bound together, that the quality of teaching depends upon faculty engaging in original research. Mm -hmm. And equally, that research is, as it were, first tested and piloted mm. in the classroom. You know, students are part of the process, actually, mm. of research, e mm. even passively in some respects, sometimes actively. The question then is, what is this research about? What kind of knowledge is it mm -hmm. that we are looking for in the mm. university? So knowledge is a comprehensive human endeavor. Everybody in every sphere of life needs knowledge, is acquiring knowledge. There's all sorts of forms of knowledge. The university does have a unique role in dedicating itself to original knowledge to systematic knowledge to rational knowledge i mean this is what is essential about the university not to eliminate other forms of knowledge but that's its distinguishing characteristic that needs to and usually does permeate its research activity and its function then flows out into mm -hmm. into teaching but what is the point of that research you could say mm -hmm. what is the point of that kind of knowledge well there you get all kinds of different answers let me just throw out mine which mm -hmm. Sounds very similar to the one you were hinting at then. I mean, the phrase I would use here is that all research in one way or the other, directly or indirectly, should be directed to exposing whatever is dehumanizing in mm. the world. Now, that's a morally loaded concept, and I make no apology for that whatsoever. No. There is no morally neutral pursuit of knowledge, even in the hardest of sciences. Mm -hmm. So, you know, well, let's put that myth behind us finally. The question is what goals, what moral goals, what anthropological, what philosophical, what theological goals is knowledge actually pursuing? Irrespective actually of whether the, the researcher is fully aware of that goal. It's going to be morally loaded one way or the mm. other. So far better to stand back and address that question explicitly. Mm. Bring those questions to the fore. In what way is my work, my research work, whether mm. it's in astrophysics or mm -hmm. you know sociology or literature whatever it might be in what way is it in some indirect way exposing factors prejudices mm -hmm. pressures dynamics mm -hmm. systems mm -hmm. that obstruct human flourishing or that fail to allow human flourishing to develop to its full or which deliberately restrict it those which are sort of overtly dehumanizing that's broadly speaking what I think, you know, university knowledge is, is about. And to me, that's a very elevating idea that a lot of research, you know, as we all know, is actually quite mundane. You know, it's not heroic. Mm. It's counting things. Yes. It's seeing connections. It's doing laborious reading of obscure texts. It's engaging in painstaking line-by-line mm. exegesis of difficult works. It's not glamorous most of the time. But I think if we keep in mind that larger horizon... Mm -hmm. All of these tasks, however mundane, are in some way to be directed towards that goal, and usually are, unbeknownst to the researcher. And therefore, you know, research in that sense is a deeply human and humanizing mm. task because it is the unique gift of the university to society.
it's a source of that kind of rigorous, systematic, rational knowledge directed towards the humanizing of the world. Note I say the world there, because we're not just talking about human beings. We're not no. just talking about society, we're talking about the environment. Nobody mm -hmm. needs reminding of how important that dimension of mm -hmm. research. Th that's broadly how I would construe that topic. Now then, of course, that then has to feed through into teaching and curriculum. On the one hand, a course curriculum, let's mm. say, whether at undergraduates, especially mm. at undergraduate mm. level, perhaps you could say, needs to introduce the student to the field. Well, what is the field? Who decides what the field is? That itself is a controversial question, and it needs to be done more self-consciously. This, I think, is where the concept of decolonizing the curriculum comes in. It's the question of who determines the curriculum? Well, historically, in most Western universities, it's been powerful, more or less wealthy, white people. They're the ones who've had the power historically mm -hmm. and have shaped the curriculum accordingly over generations. That's the challenge yeah. from those who are calling for the decolonizing of the curriculum. And it's a powerful challenge. It needs to be attended to. It's not necessarily an ideological prejudice. It's calling attention to that question. Who defines the, the field? Well, of course, then the field is complex and the field is plural. So mm -hmm. a multiplicity of voices have to be put on the table for students. Mm -hmm. In that sense, you know, the classroom is not simply the platform for the propagation of one faculty member's uh, political, ideological, or intellectual views. No. You have to inculcate a spirit of critical dialogue in every setting. But that's entirely compatible with that larger goal. Because actually, the question of what is dehumanizing, therefore what is human, is right at the heart of all these debates. Mm. And that's a deeply conflictual and a deeply conflictual issue on which there are multiplicity of perspectives but the university while pursuing that goal has to host a dialogue about what that goal means you know there there has to be a capacious space for deep disagreement yes. that is how knowledge will advance within certain limits obviously you know you you can't cover everything in a course no, no. no faculty member has complete expertise to cover everything in a course but that larger goal of uh, hosting that variety of voices to debate what human flourishing actually is in some sense i think mm. is an elevating goal as you were speaking I was thinking about what that looks like in practice for me and colleagues, and I'm passionate about our teaching and learning and championing ideas for diversity. And an example, uh, Jonathan, that I often do with uh, counseling or psychotherapy or psychology trainees is to just at the end of our first semester to say to them, can you tell me the top theorists that you, we've taught you about? And uh, very quickly, the trainees all shout out, Sigmund Freud, John Bowlby, Sandor Ferenczi, you know, John Bowlby with attachments, Sigmund Freud with psychoanalysis, Carl Jung, psychoanalytic psych depth psychology, and so on and so forth. And at about 15 bids that they're shouting out, I stop having marked, you know, written on the board. And very quickly we see we probably have about 10 or 12 men. They yeah. might shout uh, Melanie Klein, you know, with her work on object relations, but very quickly I then say to them, and I'm linking into what you were saying about diversity, abstracting the human flourishing, I then say, and you are mental health professionals that are going to be working 
in a multicultural, multi-diverse world, you know, across the domains of different ages, different ethnicities, different heritages, different sexualities, different, that's the reality. So I think what you've said about the curriculum is really a dialogue that most universities are on both sides grappling with. But I really love how you framed that to be about the question, what may be dehumanizing? What is it that is obstructing human flourishing? I wanted to ask uh, my next question, how can we make clear our ambition to enhance this work, social justice, and its impact in our future so that we are able to tackle some of the most significant challenges that face our universities, but our local communities and our Mm. society today? Again, a massive question. So let's just explore a few aspects, those that come to my mind. So let me start by saying this. Why do people go to university? What is it that they're looking for? What kind of a dialogue do we need about that question? So yes, we want as broad access as possible. We want barriers to come down so that all kinds of people can attend Mm -hmm. university. It seems clear to me that in the last generation or so, there's been a significant shift here in the direction away from what you might call the classical pursuit of knowledge towards Mm -hmm. career advancement. And therefore, universities foreground, one of their key selling points, uh, employment rates of graduates in different sectors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in some cases, even even sort of average salaries and, and so mm-hmm. forth. Nothing wrong with that. Obviously, yeah. a university experience for most people is part of the pathway towards some sort of career, some kind right. of employment, mm-hmm. um, whatever mm-hmm. that might be. And that, that's always been the case and s- still should be the case. But, you know, do we not need to shift the balance here somewhat? Mm-hmm. Let me just quote a line which came from Rowan Williams, which I like very much. He just said this. He said, the most important bit of impact any university course can have is to help people become intelligent citizens. Now, as with any quote from Rowan Williams, you've got to unpack each word there. The point is intelligent citizens, not prosperous consumers or high-ranking professionals, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. By citizenship there, by being an intelligent citizen, he means mm-hmm. somebody who is fully engaged in yes. society as an act of solidarity with fellow members of society, mm. striving towards common goals. So implicit in it is a notion of society having some kind of common good, mm-hmm. which will include a commitment to social justice, to equity, mm-hmm. to you know overcoming oppression and, and exclusion and so mm-hmm. forth. I mean, one could spell that out in richer terms as we've already begun to do. So you know, if a university asks the question, what do we need to be, what do we need to do if we are to produce intelligent citizens, might that lead to a different set of priorities than the ones mm-hmm. that currently drive universities. Mm. Of course, universities are under huge pressures, pressures from government to deliver measurable targets. This is the whole reason for the whole research assessment Mm. process and the teaching assessment exercises and so forth and impact assessments. This to me has become a far too burdensome and bureaucratic and confining Mm. process. It's the heavy hand of government working towards its own objectives, which Mm. are often the government's objectives, not those of universities and society. So yeah. I think there's a significant imbalance there. But that whole government assessment mentality needs to be remodeled and reconfigured mm-hmm. in a way to allow universities more freedom, yes, more professional freedom, vocational freedom to set their own priorities in their own ways. So that, you know, the benchmark for a successful career in the university sector is now a very narrow benchmark. 
we all know what it is. It's a certain set of publications in a certain set of recognized outputs, a certain quantity of publications, mm. quantity prioritized sometimes over quality. But there's a absolute exponential explosion of publication, which none of us can keep up with, to be honest. I mean, we have to focus on very narrow areas in order to be so-called up to date. Mm -hmm. So that's one symptom of this skewing, I think, of the central function of the university, not to downgrade at all the place of the university in a career trajectory. Yeah. And that's obviously great. One can ask questions about whether the current set of offerings of our universities is actually producing very good careers for a lot of people. I mean, we all know the, the joke now about the graduate of a, a university who's competing for a job as a barista on some high street because mm. the jobs aren't there for the number of graduates. Sure. So the questions like that need to be addressed. But, you know, I think the bigger question is, what is it that we want the university experience to do passing through it as students, mm. as researchers and so forth? That's where we need to ask the question of purpose. Universities can pursue multiple purposes, but the central one, I think, is, as I've suggested, you know, that it's the production and transmission of a certain kind of knowledge that contributes to human flourishing, that poses dehumanizing, and, and it builds solidarity, builds communities of cohesion and justice, and people who are willing to break the mold, willing mm. to be countercultural, who are willing to be transformative, rather than simply pursuing their own individual self-interests, worthy though they may well be. It really provokes thoughts. And for a long time, I've, I've thought about what is the function of our work as academics? And uh, an example is I'm passionate about uh, trauma-informed teaching in which we really help, you know, I'm working with counselors, psychotherapists, practitioners, psychologists who will be at the forefront of kind of the mental health workforce. And in trauma-informed teaching, we'll have this idea around when we do notice those things that may be dehumanizing others or particular presentations of psychological distress, rather than asking what is wrong with you, we ask what happened to you. And that brings back that interconnectedness of the person and the system that they are living in. So I think that's really wonderful to think about kind of areas of practice and trauma-informed teaching. But the other bit that I really love about what you're saying about the kind of citizen that comes out from a university education who has the awareness of what they need to do, a responsibility and uh, an appreciation of the diversity of others within the community. So there's a lot there. And I think for colleagues who will be listening from all over the world in relation to social justice, we really are starting to scratch the surface with these ideas. Not to embarrass you here, Jonathan, but I know and I hear you've uh, just submitted a, a manuscript for a wonderful book. And I just wondered whether, uh, by way of ending, you could tie in what you feel we could learn in relation to social justice from the ideas that you've been recently working on and, and writing on, on the place of faith in democracy and diversity, as it were. Sure. Every author is always happy to talk about their own book. <laughs> so thanks for the question. Yeah, so the book is called Faith in Democracy, and the subtitle is Framing a Politics of Deep Diversity. That phrase, deep diversity, is a phrase from Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher from whom I've learned a great deal. Deep diversity meaning that, you know, the diversity, the plurality that we see in society now is, it's not just a surface plurality, it's, yeah. it reflects deep divergences of fundamental worldview, fundamental yeah fiction, fundamental conceptions of, mm. of reality displayed in different religious, 
traditions, but also different moral and philosophical mm. conceptions, and of course, mm -hmm. born along by very diverse cultures. So deep diversity is a characteristic of many Western societies. Some are more diverse in that sense than others, but we all have to confront it. We are all confronting it. And, you know, different nations are responding in profoundly different ways, some more satisfactory than, than others, obviously. My book attempts to do with a focus on the UK. Uh, it's, it's the place of faith. Faith construed broadly, not just religion, but, you know, other large visions of society. I, I include under the term faith, large moral visions. What is their place in a liberal democracy like the UK? And so I pick up on all sorts of contested questions that have hit the headlines in recent mm -hmm. years. Archbishop Rowan Williams famous or infamous lecture on the place of Sharia law in mm. the UK and mm. so forth, and more broadly the place of Islam, the contested politics of Islam in British politics, uh, the place of the Church of England, of course, as the established church, and many other related questions. And really what I try to do in that book is to say that if we understand democracy in a certain way, as a radically inclusive participatory forum mm. for the common pursuit of social justice, I use a term similar to that, that has certain implications. And one of those implications that we have to respect and recognize and respond to the people as they are and not as we would prefer them to be. And increasingly, a number of citizens seek to foreground their faith-based identities for whatever reason, mm -hmm. Christian, Muslim, Hindu, secularist, feminist, radical ecology, and so forth. This seems to me, in principle, a fascinating development. It's mm. a very challenging development for a democracy that has tended to think of itself, at least mm. among its elites, as essentially secular, in which religion and matters of faith are questions mm -hmm. of private life, mm. private concern. That paradigm is now under huge pressure. Indeed, you could almost say that it's kind of shattered because of the, the groundswell of these plural voices of faith that are challenging secular monism, say. So what do we do with that? And that's really what tries to deal with. And to me, this is also a matter of justice. It's a matter of social justice. You know, we sometimes think of social justice as dealing only with economic questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, questions of equality of opportunity but it's also questions of how we do justice morality of faiths in our society mm -hmm. and in, in some ways we do that reasonably well in some settings in mm. the uk we're not an aggressively monistic secular state no. we have a state that funds faith schools that welcomes faith contributions in many different areas of civil society so we're not an aggressively secular state in that regard but i think we could do much better than we do at present particularly attending to those voices who tend you know, not to hit the headlines, not to gain prominence for all sorts of reasons, because they're small in number, they lack the capacity, the historical mm -hmm. capacity to put forward their voices in public setting in a powerful and compelling way. You know, recent immigrants, particularly from different cultures, who may be educationally or in other ways disadvantaged for all sorts of reasons. And then, you know, the eccentric minorities that we tend to either ignore or belittle, but who may have surprising things to say, if only we would listen. That's the goal of the book, to ask the question, what would British democracy look like if it was much more firming that diversity of faiths? Mm. And what principles of justice do we need to bring to bear 
to frame politics of diversity. So by framing a politics of diversity, I don't simply mean managing it. You know, I hate that word. Managing diversity is the language of the powerful. It's the language of the establishment. Contrary, what we need to do is to discern, respect, facilitate diversity, and then, of course, place limits on it where it places serious challenges to the integrity of democracy. This is not a complete free-for-all where anything goes, but a much more affirming approach to the articulation of faith, the diversity of faith perspectives in society. I write this book out of my own perspective, which is Christian political theology. So I actually call my model, paradoxically, Christian democratic pluralism. But I use that language simply to say this is my one voice mm -hmm. thrown into the conversation that must yeah. be multi-faith, multicultural and open to all, all comers. That's a flavor of, of what I've been working on anyway. Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan, for that. And as we end, I really value the conversation and the dialogue that we have had and the things you've had to say in relation to us really being challenged to think about social justice in the terms of those things that thwart human flourishing and our commitments to it. I really love your approach to encouraging us to think about discerning and respecting all our diversities, but the link you make to democracy, and also to think about the common pursuit for social justice. I think that's really come across and certainly for colleagues in universities like myself and at York St. John University really being interested in what we do within the curriculum, within our research to hold this in mind. And I frame these things myself in thinking about our love and compassion for fellow citizens. You know, mm. if anything, COVID-19 social restriction guidelines have shown us that. And also how you've linked in, in the diversities, examples of the link to our ecology, our environments, feminism, different faiths, religion, secularism, that there is a place for all and we can all meet at the point of the common pursuit for social justice. But just to say that in that respect, you know, the university does have a unique position within society, so within a democracy, in the sense that it can host the kind of intelligent, respectful, informed, mm -hmm. patient, civil conversations that society currently is finding so incredibly difficult to do. Wow. You know, we've seen that over Brexit. Of course, Brexit was debated in university settings. You know, I, I participated in some of those. And of course, in university settings, it's all very restrained for the most part. It's civil, it's informed. Out in the larger society, we comprehensively fail to have that kind of mm. a debate. Now, was there a way, would there be a way for the university to make its resources available to wider society mm -hmm. and to democracy to elevate the level of debate? Now, that's not to say that parliament and local councils have to sound like a, a university seminar. No. They'll never be that. But nonetheless, can the university somehow share its own internal experience mm. of civility? That would be a very, very special gift if the university could do that to a democracy which now is riven by tribalism, by division, by an atmosphere of toxic mutual self-rejection and exclusion. That will be a very exciting challenge if a university could consciously take that Ooh. challenge on. And ask how can we contribute to, as it were, the healing, I would use that word, you know, the, the healing of our democratic discourse, which is suffering from a great sickness at the moment.
And what a wonderful place to end thinking about social justice and healing. So I would like to say a very big thank you to Dr. Jonathan Chaplin for your wonderful contribution, which no doubt has furthered the stimulus of my thinking and really given me more passion to be engaged so radically with these ideas. And I'm sure this will be the same for my colleagues. And so I'd just like to say thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening to this conversation and dialogue. My name is Professor Divine Charu, and I'm a professor of counseling psychology at York St. John University. And our guest today, Dr. Jonathan Chaplin, who's a political theologian and a member of the Divinity Faculty at Cambridge University, and also a research associate of the think tank Theos. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you.